Um, so as we're going to look tonight, we're going to finish looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Um, just a couple things I want to draw your attention to. You know, when you, when you study the book of Ecclesiastes, what is remarkable about it is that you instantaneously come to the realization that, well, now this is a different place in Scripture than normal. It's just different in so many ways. And, and how is it so different? You notice that most of the Bible is written to instruct us on the things we ought to do and the way we ought to do them. Ecclesiastes is different in that it gives us the information we need to figure out the things that we ought to do and the way that we ought to do. And that's the, uh, that, that would only make sense that somebody who is given a tremendous gift of wisdom would write in such a way. So our, our pursuit in Ecclesiastes is to mine wisdom in the hopes of seeing and understanding the world and our lives as accurately as possible. That's really what Solomon's goal is, to help us to be able to uh, think about these things, to think about life, to think about the world around us, and to be able to have an accurate view. You, I think you would agree with me that there's nothing that is more unhealthy than somebody who has a completely disconnected understanding or view of the world around them. I mean, somewhere in there is... is uh, you know, the definition of insanity. It's, it's very problematic. And yet so many people today uh, really just have such a wrong idea of the world in which we live in, and that's the source of so many problems and struggles that they face. So we're asking questions like, well, what's the point of all our accomplishments? You can't study the book of Ecclesiastes and not have conversations about death and the end and what's going to matter and when, when, you're, when, you're, you know, when you're lying in the hospital bed or when you've been sent home on hospice, what are you going to be thinking about? What are the things you're going to be grateful for? What are going to be your regrets? And as much as uh, so many people feel like that's unhealthy and something they don't want to do, that's a super healthy thing to do. Amen? I really hope and pray that I've had conversations with uh, some of you over the last few weeks uh, just conversations where you've told me that you've changed things in your life. You've, you've changed your priorities. You've changed the way you spend time. You've changed uh, just things, the way that you operate your family based on these conversations in Ecclesiastes. That's what this book is meant to do, to change things. If you study Ecclesiastes and you walk away the same way, then it's been a failure. And every week I just feel like it's doing such a tremendous uh, work in me. Uh, we'll ask a question like, well, where's our hope when life is met with failure or even the simple toil and boredom? You know, because one of the great struggles of our time is the mundane. I'm always uh, fascinated by how much joy you all get in, uh, when I talk about my struggles with the mundane. I struggle with it. We ask the question, is this all there is to life? Is there more? Or is this it? So on the surface, it would seem that the message of this section of Ecclesiastes is that all of life is meaningless and nothing matters. Yet upon closer inspection, 
we see something very different. Okay? Now, if you remember, the first part of chapter 3 is one of the most famous sections of Ecclesiastes where there's a time for everything. And really, as wonderful as that section is, this is the section that, that gives all the instruction that that's in the Scripture for. And so here's what we see when we look closely at what Solomon's saying. It is because God is the source of all meaning and goodness that as we live the life that we are given, everything matters. God wants to draw our attention to all the little simple things in life that matter. They make a difference. They're not meaningless. They matter, but it's all in the way we understand. If we understand correctly, my goodness, what a difference. So part one, where is justice? It's a big struggle. Ecclesiastes 3, look at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I talked a little bit about this last time where, so Solomon is exploring all of what's going on in the world around him. And one of the things he does is he goes to the court. He goes to the place where justice is supposed to be rendered, where right is supposed to be discovered and defended. And he goes to the court and he finds that even in the courts, in the place of, judge, of justice, no, there's wickedness and iniquity. And so in a world without regard for God... Places which should serve as a refuge of justice and righteousness have been corrupted and defiled. Now, that's not said to, to, to stress you out or to bum you out. That's the reality in which we live in. And so what do we need to do? We need to understand that, right? We, the more you understand what a world looks like that doesn't have regard for, for God, the better off you're going to be. Because if you don't understand that, what does that mean about you? That you live in la-la land. Because that's not where we live right now, is it? No. We live in a world that doesn't have regard for God. So, here's what we see. We see some of you are like, no, it's not that bad. Okay. We see abuse. We see brokenness and wickedness in schools, in families, in government. And even in churches, we see that, that some of the most uh, horrible things that happen. You take, you take schools, for example. I don't mean some of the, the instances of violence that have been perpetrated at schools. I mean some of the atrocious things that have, that have occurred where a person in authority has abused their authority and, and inflicted great pain on a student in a school. Now, when you see a news report about something like that, and you think, oh, that's, you know, how horrible that is, or what's wrong with that person, do you ever stop to think, now, that happened to that student, and that happened with that teacher. What about all those other kids in the classroom? How does that incident affect all the students in that school going forward? That from a very young age, we sort of know that in a 
in a school setting that we, we, we respect this person who's in authority and that they're there because they care for us and that they want what's good for us and we can trust them and then that's violated and look at what happens. Even if it's not, even if it's not, you're not personally involved, all those students are affected by that, right? Yes. Families. We see so many people today are struggling with all sorts of, of, of issues and complexes regarding to abandonment because the people who were, who were supposed to, I mean, you know, our church exists as a refuge for people who have been abandoned by the people in the world that were supposed to be the ones that would never abandon you or forsake you, Right? Yes, and yet we see great atrocities happening in families amongst family members. Governments that are established to govern nations and people and, and to pass laws that will, will, will bring safety and security and, and you know, do things in, a, in an orderly fashion. Did you used to years ago, I mean, when I say years, I'm talking a decade ago. I can remember a decade ago watching videos and news footage of uh, parliaments and other nations, European nations, third world nations, so on and so forth, Acting in ways that are so inappropriate, that were just appalling. You remember seeing that? And thinking to yourself like, my goodness. Remember that? Well, it's here now. It's here. And it's only going to get worse. How long do you think it's going to be before a fight breaks out on the floor in Congress? Somebody hits somebody with a chair? It's coming. You ever seen those news footage of all that craziness going on? It's here. It's coming. Churches. The greatest, most atrocious, widespread scandal of our generation is from a church and a denomination that has wounded and hurt children who knows the numbers across the world, all through our country, all across Europe? Churches. So we must remember that every human court is made up of people under the sun. Using man's wisdom to render their judgments. Listen, we... You know, you, 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 you have to be realistic or you're simply going to frustrate yourself. Now, I'm not saying that we embrace something that's wrong or that we embrace even mediocrity. That we should always uh, strive to do the best that we can do. But you have to be realistic. You, have to, you cannot expect something from a human court that a human court is incapable of giving. See, that would have been a great place for an amen because that's a huge problem. Don't do that. It's, listen, they're under the sun and they're using man's wisdom. We should be shocked when they get it right. We should be. 
We should never be looking to man-made institutions to try to find righteousness and a cure for injustice. Never in any situation. Solomon is just so wise in this area. He, it, because of his power and his position and his capacity to change things, he, is, he has such a great handle on this because he has the authority to change anything, and yet he realizes. Here's, here's, here's the point. Solomon's not complaining because there's wickedness in the place of justice, but because the wickedness in the place of justice cannot be corrected under the sun. You understand? He's smart enough to know that wickedness in a human court, well, that, that's what we should expect, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. What's shocking to him is that no matter what we do about it, we can't eradicate it. You with me? So when we endeavor to do something, I think I used this illustration uh, last time. I, I was talking about Rescue 100, and I said, we from the beginning understand we're, we never set out to resolve or fix the foster care program in the state of Mississippi. No. It can't be fixed, and it will never be fixed. Our job is to be faithful and do what we can do to make a difference, right? What did Jesus, Jesus so many times would just say little simple things that would explain this truth to us. Remember how the Scripture says that, well, the poor are always going to be with you. All the, anyone who starts talking about eradicating poverty, is, it's nonsense. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. The Scripture says, wrong. There will always be poor among you. So what is, what is the answer? Just leave them alone and let them perish? No. Do what you can do, but be understanding that it's never going to be eradicated. Because if you think you're going to resolve it, what's going to happen? All you're going to do is enter into frustration, Right? It's just understanding. Look at verse 17. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. So here's the key, that in our frustration, Solomon is just reminding us that when we get frustrated, we can easily forget when we see injustice and wickedness that God sees it too. He sees that. Listen, when, when you see something and you're frustrated with it, you have to remember you weren't the first one to see it. Even, the situ, even, even your own little unique situation, God already knew that. that, that wasn't, he wasn't unaware of that. He's not blind or unaware. And there's coming a day of supreme judgment. He's got this thing. He understands. Look at Isaiah, 5, uh, Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Listen. Justice will be rendered, and it will be rendered perfectly and swiftly and completely 
but it will not be rendered in your time or my time. Remember that the beginning of this chapter is all about there's a time for everything and there's a place where the Scripture says that God made everything beautiful in His time. Well, these verses about injustice and uh, wickedness, they don't exist in a vacuum. They're connected to the same train of thought that God has made everything beautiful in its time. So, God hasn't just made the things that we can understand beautiful. He's made it all beautiful. So, we need to remember this. We need to remember when we, we get this sense in our heart of, yeah, God, I want you to get them. You know, I want them to have to pay for what they've done. Really? Is that a position that you or I want to be in? We want to put ourselves in? When we feel those feelings, that we all feel at times, but when we feel them, how do we process them? There is one Supreme Court and judge, and it's not us. Stay out of that chair. Do not put yourself where you don't belong. It's a very dangerous place to be. So here's the principle. God's not indifferent to injustice. He cares deeply about it, even the injustice and wickedness of our own sin. You see, what, this, is, this is the danger. The danger is, is that we might sit here tonight and think about all this and go, but you know, thank God I'm, I'm saved. I don't have to worry about any of this. Well, now let's slow down a second. Let's don't allow our salvation to create some sense of license Remember, God is consumed with making right injustice, right? He is, he is, he, he is obsessive-compulsive about righteousness and perfection. So, you not only need to know that as you're looking at the world around you, you need to know that as you look in the mirror, That the same God is deeply aware, deeply concerned about what's going on in your life and what's going on in my life. God is patient and he has his own purposes and God will judge in his own time. And it's something that only understanding only the light of wisdom and understanding can, can bring our hearts to a place where we can receive uh, the, the ability to be patient with this regard because that's what it takes. It takes, therefore, we must be patient to wait out God's timing, which requires faith that God is sovereign and that He's good. You see, when we begin to uh, feel this necessity to execute justice, when we, when we find ourselves, you know, praying and in such a way that we're, you know, begging God to speed up his timetable. Something's disconnected. You see, our grasp on God's goodness and sovereignty has begun to weaken. Because now, clearly by what are the posture of our hearts 
we're, we're uneasy. As if we think that the swifter God executes justice, you know, the more just it's going to be. Does that matter? You say, well, well, sure it matters. If somebody per, per, uh, perpetrates a crime against one of my family members, I want justice to be swift. In other words, I don't, I don't want it to take 10 years for the, for the sentence to be levied. Well, because you're thinking that God operates in, like a human court does. So let's say that, that with God, it takes 10 years or 50 years or 500 years. Has anybody gotten away with anything? Has anything slipped through his fingers? Has the fact that there's been a, a delay in time, has it somehow lessened? Or is all injustice going to be made perfectly right? In fact, oftentimes in God's economy, a delay is worse for the person because it simply is greater opportunity to heap condemnation upon yourself, right? Yes. Well, what has every person, including you and me, ever done in our lives with delayed consequences? Gotten worse. That's what we've done. We've gotten, we've, we've, we've wrongly convinced ourselves that we got, got away with something. And then we continued on that. And so we actually heaped up more problems so that when the, when the boulder finally rolled down the hill, we had 10 times bigger problem than had we the very first time understood the consequences of it. Part two, why does God then delay justice? Great question, Solomon. Help us with this. Verse 18, I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and all return to dust. Ooh, this is good. So what's happening? God is testing humanity. Now Solomon is being very strategic and specific. As God is speaking through Solomon to us here, we see that in this testing... The testing is not a revelation for God, but intended to be a revelation for us. See, the testing is for, for our discovery. God already knows. You see, what happens is, is that in the delay that we perceive, we get a full view display of our ignorance and our true nature and our destiny apart from God. That's what happens.
Everywhere in your life and my life where God's timing and our timing are different because they are, because His ways aren't our ways, His thoughts aren't our thoughts. And when we bump up against that, that is an opportunity for us to discover not about God, but about ourselves. Do we really trust God the way we say that we do? Do we really believe God the way that we say that we do? That's when all the self-discovery comes in. We think that we're on top of the food chain, but without God, we're more like cattle than we care to admit. That's it, no response. Wednesday night, I got quite a reaction out of that. Wait a minute, I thought that we're unlike animals and that we were created in the image of God. Well, what's Solomon saying? What's all this talk about us being like animals? They die, we die. They turn to dust, we turn to dust. What is all this about? Here's the principle. We're like animals in that we're all created by God. Yes. Animals live, we live. They die, we die. They eat, we eat. We reproduce, they reproduce. We have no real advantage over animals. Really, because... We die. I mean, if, you, if, if, we're, if we have such a vast advantage over animals, then we wouldn't die. But we do. We, we give ourselves so much credit because we think that we can, we can prolong our lives and that we've, we've figured so many things out and that we can make them so much better and so much more enjoyable and we convince ourselves of all these things. Yet, I can have a five-minute conversation with you and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that people lived better 50 years ago than all the things that we've created all the, the light speed with which we can do everything has only made us more stressed out. Well, let's just take the opioid epidemic. Why is everybody on opioids? I thought it was so good. thought we had it figured out. I thought life's so good. Why is anxiety through the roof? What's happening? I mean... We have a smartphone that can do everything, yet we don't have time to do anything. You see, we're really not that different from animals. We die. There's nothing we can do about it, just like them. They're born. They live a season. They die. We're born. We live a season. We die. Created by God. Created by God. We're just like them. Except, except that we're unlike animals in that 
God created Adam in his image to exist in relationship with him. That is a very important distinction, not that we're created in the image of God, but that why we were created in the image of God. Because that is what differentiates us from animals. It's the relationship with Him that ignites our image of Him. You understand? Okay, I'll explain it to you. You go home this evening and you want to unwind and relax before bedtime. So you turn on Discovery Channel and you're going to watch a nice soothing documentary about life on the African plain. You're going to see a few beautiful gazelles get ripped to shreds by ferocious predators. You're going to see the brevity of life, the cruelty of the animal kingdom. You're going to see that there's no regard or morality in the animal kingdom. Most of you are squinting just thinking about it. You know, that's not going to relax you. You're going you're to watch and realize that it's destructive and competitive and bloody Or you can flip the channel and watch a documentary about downtown Chicago and relax and watch how people love each other and care for each other and how peaceful and wonderful it is. What's the difference? There is no difference. It's the same. This is where we sort of start to lose track in the conversation because I got very strong feelings about this, the way in which our culture is developing these extraordinarily unhealthy and bizarre relationships with animals. You remember our friend Steve Treadwell? That name ring a bell? Well, it does for me because he was a guy that I was instantaneously fascinated by. Not for a good reason. I'm just going to confess my own frailty, but for a bad reason because Steve Treadwell was a.k.a. the grizzly man. He was the rocket scientist who decided that he was going to live amongst the grizzly bears and that grizzly bears would accept him as one of their own and that grizzly bears had a code of morality within, the, within their pack. And if you operated within their code, that they would, they would nurture you and treat you and care for you as if you were one, one of their own, you know? So he was sort of like a grown-up, weirdo, jungle book, Mobley kind of guy. Now, you know that I have an affinity for hiking, and I know a lot about bears. So when the Grizzly Man TV show came out, I thought, this, I'm going to watch. 
Not because I thought it was going to be right, but because I knew what was going to happen. You see, old Stevie boy's not around anymore. He was lunch one day. All his little pals, his family members decided, you know, I think he'd be kind of tasty. And they ate him, which is what grizzly bears do. And it doesn't matter how long you're with them, doesn't matter how much you think you train them, they eat people because that's what they were created to do. There's no morality. They, they don't feel any sense of guilt or, 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 or sense of duty. They just do what naturally comes to them. Nobody in our culture does that, do they? Just do what naturally comes to them. You don't find yourself just scratching your head all the time going, What? Are you kidding me? So if you just happen to be born in North Korea, What do you think your understanding would be today about morality, about right and wrong, about, about everything that you've seen and everything that you know? I don't see much difference between being born in North Korea and Steve Treadwell. To me, Looks to me like a bunch of grizzly bears. Yes, God's written eternity on the hearts of man. But man has the free will to reject that. If you look at human history, it is a gale force wind that is blowing the undeniable reality that apart from God, Humans act like animals. And in a bizarre twist, have now begun to relate to animals in such a way that you can do unspeakable things to a child and walk free, and the same thing done to an animal is a triple felony. So, I've said a hundred times, and I can't seem to keep this promise, but Solomon would be wise enough to know that to predict where we're going to go is just a huge mistake because who would have ever thought we'd be in the place we are now? Certainly not me. But there will be a time in the not-so-distant future when in this nation there will be a push to legalize, substantiate, glorify human marriage to animals. I don't see that as very far away. It, it's coming. They're slowly being elevated. We have funeral parlors for your pet dog. The list goes on and on and on. 
So when we declare our independence from God, we don't become more godly, we become more beastly. So part three, where's the hope? Isn't that what you've been hoping we get to? Where's the hope? Verse 21. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upward and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth? So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Now, don't you see that verses 18 through 20 isolated on their own would be pretty uh, discouraging. But then verses 20 and 22 isolated on their own in a vacuum would be misleading. But together you have this beautiful picture of understanding the world in which we live in. There's a distinction between humanity and animals and it follows this life. And it is that God will deal with us. Animals aren't going to stand before God and give an account. We are. That we will be held accountable for our souls will dwell in eternity. You see, you have to understand that you're not a body that happens to have a soul, but you are a soul that happens to be in a body. And that your soul will exist forever somewhere. And that is extraordinarily important information because that is not so with animals that's me and you and only through the assurance of eternal life or salvation will we have real joy in our lives today apart from that it's going to be frustration it's going to be vanity it's going to be kicking the goads it's going to be nothing but a struggle So here's the principle. There's a freedom and a joy in our lives when we realize that this is not all that there is. In other words, again, remember where we started. There's injustice in the place of justice, in the the courts. There's wickedness and iniquity. And that's the way it is because it's a human court and that's all it can ever be. And so we've got to realize that that's the way it's going to be and it's never going to change. But that we're different in that we've been changed, though the system has not. And so as God's children, as people created in the image of God who have embraced God and now the, the image that is within us has now been illuminated, We now relate to this injustice and we relate to the scenarios around us in a drastically different way. This is why the Bible never calls the world to change, does it? There's not one verse of Scripture that calls the world to change. Everywhere that God calls for change, who does He call to change? His people. You see, 
Solomon's just explaining it to us in a way in which we're going, yes, that's so true. So much of our frustration could be, could be quieted. We could be so much more productive if we could grab onto this, if we could understand and apply these things. Oh my goodness, your, your approach. Remember a few weeks ago when, when Matt was uh, preaching in chapter 2 and he said, what if, what if work was never intended for you to gain your identity? But if work was intended to teach us faithfulness and generosity. That is a life-altering truth right there. It will change your whole life if you understand that. We wake up and we work because we want to achieve, because we want to build, because we want to gain, because we want to we get. And Solomon says, you are missing the whole point. Work was never intended to be your identity. And every man in our culture struggles with this issue. And most women. Well, what if the, what if the principle of work was intended to teach us faithfulness? That if you hate your job and you get up every day and go to the job that you hate and do a good job for the glory of God, that God's using that job that you hate to teach you faithfulness. And the wage that you earn and the wealth that you build is, is given to you to build in you generosity. That is a game changer. And it unravels the lie of the American dream in one sentence. So there's freedom and joy in our lives when we realize that this is not all there is. Now, why? Now, this is where you got to put an asterisk. This is the big moment of chapter 3. Why is there freedom and joy? Why is Solomon trying so desperately to drive home that if you don't get anything else we talked about tonight, I know you're all hung up on the animal kingdom now, but forget all that. If you just fixate yourself on this reality that, that this is not all there is. If you get this nailed deeply into your heart, there's going to be freedom and joy in that. Why? And here's why. Because when it's not going well, we have hope of something greater. When it's unraveling, we don't unravel because our hope is not bound up in that thing not unraveling. You see... When, you're, when your job falls apart, when, you're, when your family turns against you, when, when injustice has been perpetrated against you, when things just are, won't go the right way, whatever it is, listen, in that moment, you don't become unraveled because you know that there's something greater. You know that this is not your home. You know that this is not where you will spend eternity. You know that this is just for a time. You know and I know full well that we can take anything as long as we know it's going to end. And God is saying, listen, 
you can take anything. Because it's going to end. The only thing for the child of God that's not going to end is the glory and the splendor of life in His presence. Of perfection. So don't get unraveled. That's where, that's where freedom and joy come in. But that's not all. That on the other side of the coin, knowing that, that's, that this is not all that there is, when things are going well, we know that it's but a shadow of what's to come. You see, because this is equally as dangerous. Because when things go well, what do we do? We jump into the pot and we start embracing it and building our life around it because we're like, look at how great this is. Look at how great this is going. And God's going, listen, you don't make too much of that because it's not that great. Whatever it is, if it's under the sun... It ain't that great. And there, I mean, oh, what a great reality. So here's a conclusion. After considering the options, Solomon didn't exhort us to try to understand our unjust circumstances. Isn't that interesting? He never spent one syllable explaining to us our, our, the injustice of our circumstances. Wonder why that is? Because it's irrelevant information. He didn't do that. Or to re- retaliate with bitterness. He didn't say, well, that really was a horrible thing, so I can understand why you're filled with bitterness. He didn't say that. Or to retreat into our closets and suffer alone. He didn't say, you know what? It's a terrible world out there. You know what you ought to do? You ought to stay away from it. You ought to stay home. Don't go outside. It's too dangerous. The sky's falling. What you ought to do is all get together and go out into the desert and build a big complex with a giant wall around it, paint everything white and sew all your own clothes and never cut your hair and marry people in your family. And He didn't say that. No, but what's the natural tendency is to go, if things are that bad, man, I'm out of here. I'm going to go find somewhere where they're not that bad. And Solomon's going, you're wasting your time. What happens when people retreat from the world and try to run to where it's not that bad? Every single time, what happens? They end up somewhere 10 times worse. We're watching a documentary about them going, what a freak show. How did that happen? They tried to get away and to where it wasn't bad. And what happened? It got worse. He doesn't say that. See, these are all the things that we don't say out loud, but we think them. We think, well, if I could just understand why. We say, God, why is this happening to me? And God's going, you don't need to know that. We're saying, God, I'm bitter, but... But look at, I mean, I have a right to be. And he's going, no, you don't. And we're thinking, it's so bad. I'm just not even going to leave my house. Huge mistake. Huge mistake. So what does he suggest? He doesn't suggest those things. What he did suggest is that we reject self-pity and revenge. 
We have a great capacity to just be like, you know, injustice to cause us to just revel in self-pity or to try to exact revenge on our own. Either way, it's a disaster. And we seek out ways to find the hidden advantages in our disadvantages. You know what I mean by that? This is what I mean. Solomon is trying to tell us, and then we're done. That's what he's trying to tell you. He's trying to tell you that if you're saved, if you are saved in every situation that you will ever face in your life, no matter what it is, in every moment of every situation, you have a tremendous, incalculable advantage. In that at any moment, in any time, in any situation, no matter how dark or gloomy or bad or horrific it may seem, if your worst fears come true, in that moment you can stop and say, wait a second, I'm saved. See, that's a game changer. You have an advantage in every situation that you have to harness and hold and embrace and and utilize. God is always an advantage. Always. We may not be able to alter our lot in life, but my goodness, we can change our response to it. Be this day, this day of reckoning, this day where God's children will stand before Him at the judgment seat of Christ. And when that day comes, and there you or I stand, we won't be together. We'll be by ourselves, each individually, one at a time, standing there. And in that day, If you know your Bible this much, you'll know that the fact that you're standing there means that you're in, right? You'll know that. You won't be standing there wondering, am I about to be cast into hell? You won't be standing there wondering that. You you wouldn't be there if that was the case. So there you're standing because that is a vastly different moment than the great white throne judgment. So without a whole discussion of prophecy, in that moment you will know that you are God's. But there'll be this realization in that moment of all the ways in which we neglected the advantage that we had in Christ. We'll realize just as crystal clear as if it were happening for the very first time again how foolish we were how fickle our hearts are, how easily we were knocked off track, how much time and energy we wasted in, in, in our, our, our agony and our, our frailty and our worry about things that God's sovereign hand was in control of all along and that we were in a position of advantage, but we failed to utilize it. We acted as if we were an animal.
an unsaved person who doesn't know that there's more, doesn't know that this isn't all there is, or has no assurance that 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 has anything to do with them, and we do the things that they do. See, that's the lesson. And so I leave you with a few questions, and then we'll close. Have the injustices of this life caused you to become cynical? Have your wounds and your hurts and your discouragements and your failures created a space in you that has become a cynic? Have you been scarred by the reality of the cruelty of this life and succumb to the things around you as if you were not different within those circumstances? Or maybe think of it this way. As a child of God living in what is essentially the African plain, have you become numb to the degree that you don't feel the touches of grace that God makes available to you along the way? I believe that we can live our lives in such a way that though we belong to God and have advantage in every situation, God's grace that is touching us all along the way eludes us. We don't, we don't even sense it. We don't even feel it. We just become numb to it. It's a scary thought. Are you tonight in a place where you're nursing wounds, wallowing in disadvantages, or using your current state of suffering to as an excuse for self-pity. These are all traps that are very, very easy for us to fall into. And Solomon is warning us about the dangers of these ditches on either side. And that in salvation... God has brought resolution. It's just not fulfilled fully now. But it is done. You understand? It's done. So leave here tonight and go back out of here into the animal kingdom that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy and know that you have an advantage. You cannot be ended or stopped or thwarted or God's work in you cannot be undone. Cannot be undone. This isn't all there is. Don't get wrapped up in the things that are good. Don't get wrapped up in the things that are bad. It's all coming to an end. We are His image bearers. And it is our 
embracing of God and who he's called us to be that illuminates that image from within us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We are grateful.